Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello. How are you? Uh, Thank you for listening. This is the fifth episode of the Honest Generation podcast. And I had my first boy on today. Uh, His name is Connor Nolan. And um, he's from Cavan. Goes to college in NUI, um, Galway, and he is such an interesting person. Like, I loved uh, the chat we had today. Um, Connor recently wrote a book, so if you could follow him on Instagram, um, you'll be able to buy his book. He has a link in his bio. And he just is a really insightful guy. Like, he talks about his experience with anorexia, um, lad culture, toxic masculinity, his experience of being bullied um his experience with depression he talks so openly and um is so honest about mental health and he's really inspiring really inspiring um so i hope you enjoy and um, if you could share your stories would be great because um i think everyone can take something from this podcast um especially it's so great to hear a lot um a young lad talk about mental health so openly and uh yeah Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. Okay. So hello Connor, how are you? Good, good, Kim. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Um, so good, yeah, good. if you want to give a little introduction to yourself. Hi, so uh, my name is Connor Nolan. Uh, I'm originally from uh, County Cavan, but I'm in college here in Galway. I'm 22 and I'm a fourth year uh, theoretical physics student. Uh, and in the last year, I've published a book about my experiences with my, with my mental health throughout my, my teenage years. Lovely. And uh, where can we buy the book? So it's available. It's available. Um, so it's worldwide. It's available through Amazon. The book is called Normal. Uh, but if you go to my uh, website, ConnorNolanAuthor.com, that's uh, Connor with one N. There's a link there uh, to the book's availability on Amazon. Uh, or there's also a link for the book is available through MayoBooks.ie uh, in Castlebar. Uh, and after COVID, I'll have it available through other sort of Irish uh, vendors as, as well. Unreal. I actually can't wait to read it. I'm going to read it on my Kindle. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So, Connor, do you want to tell me your story or um, introduce like what your book's about? Absolutely. So my my entire book, I suppose, is based it's based around a conversation because I suppose throughout my 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 time, my teenage years and my battles of my mental health, I've learned the importance of talking. So my entire book is actually based around a, a very casual conversation that I have with a with a stranger at a house party and I take him through, he's this male character, and I take him through, I suppose, my experiences between the ages of 10 and 20. So around the ages of around 11 or 12, I, I was, like a lot of young fellas, I was big into the GEA and Gaelic football, and I wanted to be the best, you know, sports player and the best athlete I could be. And I wanted to, I got a big interest in, in fitness at a very young age. So I began running long distance and doing things like push-ups and sit-ups, stuff that you wouldn't see, you know, a 11 or 12-year-old. Uh, doing so I, I gained a huge interest in that at a young age and I got over time I got this idea into my head that the more weight I lost and you know the fitter I got the better of a footballer I would be and that's sort of sort of the correlation I got in my head mm. you know the more sit-ups I do and the more running I do the better the greater footballer I become and, and can I ask you know um, it, it was 
sorry what was the connection yeah, between yeah. um weight loss because i have no experience i've never um encountered like um a lot who suffered with body dysmorphia um so what was the correlation between weight loss and performance or like what inspired that train of thought well i've i've funny you say that a lot like a lot of people have said that it it, it certainly is more common uh, in females but i suppose what, I, what i'm very happy about is that i am seeing i suppose more and more um you know young men like myself coming out and, and speaking about the matter but i remember around the age of 10 i saw this film um it's called Coach Carter uh, with Samuel L. Jackson. And he's this, he trains this young basketball team and he gets them very fit and, and you know, very agile for playing. And that I, that I remember that film staying in my mind. I thought, right, if these, I know it was a film, but I thought if these young men can, can get that fit and that strong, I can do the same. And I, I, I wouldn't have been anyways overweight as a child, you know, but I, I, I got an idea in my head that, you know, if I shred down, if I lose fat, if I, you know, if I got the six pack and if I got the, you know, the muscular shoulders, then I'd be, you know, I'd be a great footballer. So there was this idea of I wanted to become, you know, the sculpted athlete, you know, and it's very strange to want that at such a young age, but that's yeah. what I had in, in my head. It, it wasn't so much to lose weight, but it was, to lo- it was to lose fat and to look cut like you see in pictures and how you see on television. So that's kind of what I was going for. But, but I suppose the I suppose scientifically, you know, when you're doing that, you need to eat enough and you need to have enough nutrition on board. And I had none of that. I I got this idea in my head that, oh, okay, I just need to keep losing weight, keep losing weight, one more pound, one more kilo, and I'll get faster. It was all about, it was all about the football pitch, getting faster and getting fitter and becoming a better player. But over time, the goals begin to change. I began looking in the mirror. Like it started off as a performance thing. Then I started looking in the mirror. And I started lifting my arm up and, you know, looking at my ribs and it became like, like um, it aesthetic more... goals. Exactly. It, it became more vi- a visual thing. And it, it's, it's, it sounds very, um, I suppose, very vivid. But I say in my book that, you know, when I, when I lost a lot of weight, I'd open and close my fists and I'd look at the bones on the, on the outside of my hand. And, you know, when, when you lose a lot of weight, you know, when, when, when someone suffers anorexia, the last thing to go, the last, the last place in your body where the weight disappears is your face. You know, where your face starts to close in and, and your face starts to look very um, drawn out. So that became, and it became a visual obsession of, of losing weight and, and looking as thin as possible. That's where the goal ended up. And towards the end, because I became so underweight, ironically, I became useless on a football pitch because I couldn't actually function you know, anyone who has been underweight knows that the organs are under pressure and the lungs are under pressure so all that began to happen and football then fell apart but I was so obsessed and I, I talk in my book about anorexia being this monkey that's in your head and you know he's pulling the strings you know it, it's it's calling the shots as the phrase goes and all all desire to be a footballer had had gone now I just wanted to lose weight now I just wanted to like I said see bone yeah. And it got to a stage where when I was, sorry, you want to ask a question? I'm just saying it's mad how it just takes over, consumes your mind. Absolutely. It, it, it literally, and I suppose what people don't understand is, I, I find that eating disorders are very misunderstood. How quickly it can just, it can just take a hold. Like this, it would have been say the summer, um, the summer between myself when I was going from sixth class into first year in school in those three months, I lost, I'd say, about a stone, about six kilos in those three months. Like when I, when I started secondary school, I, w- like I would have been reasonably tall for my age. I would have been about five foot four. 
but I weighed less than five stone. Like I was absolutely, I was a skeleton starting secondary school. Uh, I got to a point where uh, parents and family got, you know, extremely worried and I was brought to a doctor and the next thing I know I I was sitting in counseling and it became a a situation of, right, this has to change. And I suppose I, I, I put, I put counseling on, on the pedestal. I feel it deserves. I do believe counseling can change a life and, and there is a huge stigma around therapy and professional help in Ireland and worldwide but I, I would consider myself a walking example of the fact that counseling can it can change lives but I one thing I will never forget is at the very start my first or second counseling session I felt very interrogated you know I remember my mother was there and and the counselor and you know they have your best interest at heart and, and they're asking questions and they're trying to get you to speak about how you feel but as I say, the monkey doesn't want to do that. You know, the anorexia has taken such a firm hold. It doesn't want to give up the ghost. It wants to keep going. I think that's the, people often say the start of anything is the hardest. And I think the start of counseling and the start of therapy, especially with an eating disorder is the hardest because you're trying to change and you've got people around you encouraging you to change, but your mind won't allow it. And it becomes a very difficult period of, of turmoil, you know, at that point. Yeah. But for me, yeah. I just think that is so, um, it's so interesting because I myself uh, started becoming obsessed with food and body image when I was in kind of fifth class, sixth class. And it was okay. like an intense time, uh, like yourself, the three months between leaving or uh, sixth class and starting school, where all I did was stay at home and have uh these meals every day and I would be afraid to leave the house because I would lose control of what I was consuming and I remember as well starting first year of college or not college sorry secondary school and I like that I was brought to a counsellor by my parents um I was brought to Jigsaw in town and the a, a doctor met with me first and she said to both my parents she said this girl isn't um visibly underweight she's a healthy weight there's no problem here um you know if her mental health is uh suffering well then she needs to go on antidepressants and isn't that mental how that was the first solution given to an 11 year old you said you said two brilliant words there you said the word um you said about not wanting to leave the house because you'd lose control Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing i found about anorexia is this intense feeling of control and when you when you lose that like you said it's absolutely terrifying but and as well you say there i saw i think i saw a post there was a gesture today that you know someone can have an eating disorder and not be visually underweight you know they mightn't look like like things aren't okay but in reality you know things aren't okay you know they are struggling mentally so it's it's madness to 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 hear of you know a, a professional a doctor you know just dismissing the matter like that and it's it's i remember i've one memory i remember um uh similar to that shortly as I began to recover and, and gain a bit more weight uh, throughout counseling I went to this I went for like a checkup with a pediatrician to make sure that I suppose the body hadn't been harmed by the weight loss and it was a it was it was it was a female doctor and I was there with my mother and everything came back okay I, I was fine and she said to my mother she said Connor Connor's fine but we need to be vigilant about this from here on in and I remember I was 12 or 13 I didn't know what the word vigilant meant my mother mm-hmm. explained that basically the doctor had said my parents had missed the boat and they weren't observant enough. And I think one thing that happens with eating disorders is family can blame themselves. And my, my parents blamed themselves for years about, about that situation and that comment. 
And it was only when I, I suppose, brought my book out and explained my story that my family got closure. And it's, it's madness that, you know, a medical professional who's meant to know these things, you know, can say and do things like that, like yourself there, just saying, take anti antidepressants. It's madness how little awareness there is and little understanding there is, uh, you know, of the illness. Yeah, it's so true because we learn about anorexia and bulimia uh, in books in school. I remember seeing a textbook and the pictures uh, beside the description of these illnesses is like uh, people who have bones jutting out and that is what we are told bulimia or anorexia looks like, but it, it can look like anything. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost, it, the pictures are almost, you know, it almost looks like someone who has, you know, got a heroin addiction. The, the pictures are very, you know, they're almost animated in a sense, you know, to look, you know, in these ghastly images, but, and it's always, the bulimia one is always someone over a toilet and the anorexia is always someone who is, you know, cripplingly underweight, you know, which, you know, which isn't true at all. These things can manifest you know, and not look as, as you know, um, not look as bad as they are. Yeah. And it's, it's such a shame. There's not more um, education about it because that's why it would such a, it would be such a good thing for anyone to read your book, because if you don't experience it, like you're going to encounter someone in your life who does. Um, but I remember as well, going to a doctor in Athenry and I was 12 and he said to me, he said, um, if you don't get a hold of this, it's going to get a hold of you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I came out terrified. I was like, what's going to get a hold of me? But he, in his simple terms, was desperately trying to get me to, I don't know, be strong. I said that in quotations. But when you're that young, you don't know what's happening to you. Like, did you have any awareness of what was going on? You're, you're right, it, especially when you're very young. It's, it's, it, in, in fairness, I think he, he meant well by that statement, but absolutely he, he terrified you in, in saying that. But yeah, it's, it's very hard, you know, when you're that young. And it's, if for me, for me, what, what, what clicked and what made me recover was after about six weeks in counseling, I, I got nowhere. I, I wasn't, I was saying the bare minimum to get away with being there for the hour. Like I wasn't, I wasn't giving anything away. And my family were getting frustrated. You know, I could see, of course, my counselor didn't get frustrated, but she could see that I wasn't really opening up enough. And I had this, I say, say like a click of the fingers moment where I realized that if I don't, if I don't, you know, if I don't sort this out and if I don't recover, I will never set foot on a football field again. And it sounds like something so simple. And given how complex anorexia is, something as simple as that probably shouldn't sort it out. But I, I, I had this moment where I realized if I don't gain weight and if I don't get back to a healthier self, I will never set foot on a football field ever again. And that was, that was the moment that helped me. But in the, I'll never forget the weeks leading up to that thinking, mm. because part, part of me, I think, wanted to recover, but my mind and the anorexia just wouldn't let me. And it took that moment of realization to, I suppose, kickstart my recovery. But it is, it is terrifying. And as you say, it's that want for control and not always having it. That's what makes it so terrifying and not knowing what's going on in your head at such a young age. Mm, absolutely. Um, so that must have been incredibly hard for you to navigate that starting secondary school. It, it was difficult. I it, it suppose I remember uh, I, like I sat out of PE um, for the first, I think, six months or so of secondary school. And it's it's funny. I remember whenever like, you know, I, I used to go to counseling on a Friday morning. And I'd always come in late and, you know, people would just ask, oh, where were you? And I used to always say I had a dentist appointment 
No. Friends of mine in first year must, must have thought I was getting no, about 20 too. teeth pulled and about four, <laughs> 40 fillings. You know, we ne- you never just said, oh, I, I was in counselling. And that left a weird message in my head. That left a message of, if we're going to counselling or if we're going to get help, we don't talk about it. We yeah, keep shame. it hush-hush and we don't say a word. Exactly, mm. shame is the exact word. It's a shameful thing. We keep it under wraps. And that led to, the, that, that led to me not telling anyone like those people I was friends with, there's people who I'm still friends with now who I've been friends with since my first year in school. And I didn't tell them about what I had gone through until I was in my first year of college. I kept it so hush hush all through secondary school out of that feeling of shame that, oh no, I wasn't at therapy. I was at a dentist appointment. It's mm. fine. Everything's fine. You know, everything is, everything is grand. It's, it's madness how we just, we try and hide it. And, and one thing I try and communicate through my book and, and whenever I speak is, to, is I want to try and talk to families and say, if someone in your family or if a friend of yours is battling with this, they have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of. They are not to blame. You are not to blame. This is something that happens to one and ever, one and however many people. I'm not sure of the figures exactly. And they can get through it and you can help them get through it. There is no shame in this at all. And that's one thing I suppose I didn't realize at that age so I kept it very much you know t- to myself uh, in throughout say the start of my secondary school mm. yeah yeah it's a terrible um thing like especially when you're in secondary school as well it's so funny you saying the dentist appointment I used to say that I used to alternate between um because um like that I used to come in I don't know what day it was I think it was a Tuesday I'd leave early or something and I'd say the dentist or um I would make up a different excuse every week and it's stressful um, trying to make up excuses to your friends because they know that there's something up and they become kind of um, uh, not um, you just become or in your head, you become kind of a weird person and there's something wrong with you. You're going to counsel and you have to make up excuses and um, all that pressure um, on top of someone who's struggling already really, really hard for uh young kids like in secondary school having to lie and having that shame um with going to counseling and i'm sure it absolutely still exists the taboo with counseling yeah the dentist and all that crack yeah um it's like an ex it's an extra pressure on top of everything else isn't it absolutely like it becomes as you say like your friends know that that you're lying and you almost become you know become wary of that and in, in fairness thankfully i suppose the people around me they I suppose they believed me and they went, oh, you're the dentist. Okay, that's fine. But, you know, it, it, it definitely did add another, another pressure to it. But one thing I will say is I was very lucky in the sense that I was in counseling for about a year. And like, like my, my battle with anorexia was relatively short. It was, say, just throughout my first year uh, in school, in secondary school, that would have been the brunt of it. You know, I, I finished counseling, say, the start of my second year. And I would have still battled a bit with my relationship with food. I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have eaten anything without thinking about it, if that makes sense. You know, I would have still kept track of what I was eating, but my battle was relatively short. I, ha- like I have heard of cases lasting up to up to five or six years. And when I hear that, my hat is off to anybody, you know, who gets through that because it, it is such a controlling and, and overwhelming illness to go through doing that kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And stuff like that as well. Um, it doesn't just go overnight. You know, you can get over... Like you were lucky that um, you got over the brunt of it um, in a year or so you say or whatever. But I don't know if, if this was the case for you, but I know for a lot of people um, when stressful times arise in your life 
um, the eating disorder kind of rears its head again and you kind of reach for control and the only in and you kind of revert back to how you got control before and that's through food that was definitely the case for me during stressful times um i would go back to controlling my food because it's what i could control okay um i don't know did you uh, yeah, it, it's, have an experience like that i would have in, in my second year i would have i remember what happened was I was still, when I came out of counseling, like I, I gained weight throughout my counseling time. I, you know, I began to physically recover. And when I came out of counseling, I didn't gain any more weight for a year. I was very strict of what I eat, what I ate. I, I wouldn't go a slice of bread over my, you know, my, what I was eating in a day. I was still being very ruthless with, I suppose, a diet plan. And what happened was I began to play under 16 football. And that's sort of an age among lads where, you know, people start growing up at different rates to other people. And I very quickly became the runt of the litter you know like I I was I was still a healthy weight but lads you know around me were they were this was filling out and you know they were just getting bigger at the shoulders and broader and I was beginning to fall behind and I realized right okay I have to properly nip this in the bud and I have to properly start eating more and not limiting my intake you know I have to if I want to be a good footballer I want to be a good athlete and if I want to be happy and healthy and not be the smallest guy in the class you know because there was a bit of bullying as well I would have got picked on I was going to say, yeah, was. did you get um, much bullying or backlash uh, in secondary there, school? There would have been. Yeah, there would have been. Like, with, and this was one thing I talk about in, in my book. And when I talk, I talk a lot about kind of this lad culture. And because I, I feel that the GAA is kind of full of it. You know, it's, I, there are guys I would have played football with. And, you know, I would have been sort of the smallest of the group. And, you know, a lot of stuff would have taken place in schools and on school buses. to be pockets ripped off, shirts and ties stolen and jumpers ripped and people call it a bit of crack and a bit of you know a bit of camaraderie but when you're on the end of it all day every day the crack fairly soon wears off and it took me many years to admit to myself that wasn't a bit of crack that was bullying because yeah. you know you can look back and think oh they meant no harm it's like no 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 no. this happened every day without fail you were always the target this was bullying and you know you, you begin to drift from those people and you begin to realize what true friendship is so the bullying would have added another challenge you know as I was recovering from the anorexia that would have added another dimension to it yeah I was going to say that must have been incredibly hard considering you were vulnerable anyways yeah but it kind of it did kind of inspire a bit of a further recovery as I said I realized when I got to about 14 I said right if I want to stop being picked on if I want to stop being thrown around on a football pitch like a ragdoll I have to get bigger and that's where my relationship with the gym sort of started I I I started getting into weights and and you know I bought myself a bench press from the age of 14 or 15 and that began you know a completely new chapter in my life and and I use I suppose my physical progression in my book from from being the anorexic at 12 or 13 to I eventually got into competing in powerlifting at the age of 17 and 18 you know I use that progression as a I suppose to show people that your life can change you know and it can take a long time and you might never think it will, but, you know, your life can change. So as I look back with a, in a sense of that was a difficult time, the anorexia and the bullying, but it did inspire, you know, a new chapter and, and me getting into a new sport, you know, in my late teens. So I look I do look back with a sense of everything did happen for a reason. And it, it gives me a lot of peace to look at it in, in that way. Yeah. Wow. That's really inspiring. The two contrasting journeys, how um, you were kind of at war with your body and your mind um to go in the completely opposite direction that's really inspiring 
Thank you. It, it, it's one thing I've read though is that a lot, there are a lot of people, I suppose, who do go from anorexic to being very much into fitness very quick. And it can be, it can actually be a symbol that you haven't recovered. You've just changed your, you've just changed your sort of direction, you know, yeah. and I can understand that in, in a sense, because I went from, as I say, as I said a few minutes ago, looking in the mirror, wanting to see bone to wanting to be as big as I could and to want, wanting to be as strong as I could. But I do feel that my weightlifting journey and my gym journey, you know, as, as obsessed as I became with it, I do believe that journey was much healthier because, you know, I was more aware of myself from the battle with anorexia. You know, I was, you know, I, I was very much self-aware and I, I, I felt good in myself and I, I, I was still looking in the mirror and I, you know, I could see muscle forming, but the, I knew in my mind that the relationship with my body now was different and it was healthier. And there have been times since where, you know, I might miss the gym for a couple of weeks due to exams and different things. And I, st- I won't feel myself. I won't feel right when I'm not in the gym. And, you know, and I know that that might still be a remnant of the anorexia there that I have to be in the gym to feel good, but that's something I feel I'm able to cope with and I'm able to, I'm able to deal with. Yeah. As, you know, awareness of it it's kind of everything, you know, it's not absolutely straight, it's not a straightforward journey or a straightforward road, but you're aware of what's going on in your head. Um, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, can I ask actually, uh, what tools were given to you at such a young age to deal with the eating disorder? One thing, um, I, I have a lot of, a lot of my memory of counseling is like there were, there were, I was in one session a week for a year and there's actually a lot I forget but one thing I will never forget um it was sort of a body image technique my, my counselor bought me in front of a mirror and uh so I'd, I'd stand say like maybe maybe four or five feet from the mirror and with my guidance she would trace out you know the position of my head and the position of my shoulders and waist on the mirror and it was to show that the mirror sort of plays tricks on us you know yeah. we can look in the mirror and think that we are we're wider in places than we are. We're narrower in places than we are. And when she traced, when she traced my image on the mirror, it was it was completely, it was strange to see the mark. You know, she just drew an outline with a marker. It was strange to see it. And when I stood away from the mirror, I, I said, "The image on the mirror that's been drawn looks far smaller than I think I look in the mirror." And that's probably one of the greatest. There's actually a friend of mine who sort of had a had a similar battle and and she had never been shown that that sort of uh, tool, as you say. And I showed it to her about a year ago when she said, Connor, that's, that's brilliant. You know, that's, that really works. So that, that, that's probably, that's the most memorable tool I have uh, from that time. And that, that's something that definitely sticks in my memory in terms of realizing that the mirror isn't everything, John Akinaway. Yeah, wow. I can imagine how powerful that was. Um, but it is so true that your mind can play tricks on you. And I don't, I think a lot of people don't realize um, how clever it is. Um, I found for myself, it was seeing a picture of myself. And I had this image of myself, this big, huge person. And then I'd see a picture of myself and I would look at the picture and think I look so small. And that was kind of my realization. Wow, your brain can really play tricks on you. But at the same time, that um, picture thing became a bit of an obsession. Like as a young girl, I got such a high at seeing a picture of myself being so small. Then it was like your mere fixation. Yeah. I was constantly looking at pictures of myself. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's a it's a tricky thing, isn't it? 
it is like it's it's funny there's shortly after I recovered I like we had like all of our family photos around went on around the laptop and I went a few months after I left counseling I went on to the laptop and I I deleted every photo of me from say the darkest hours when when my weight was at its lowest you know um before my recovery started I went on because my I had, a, I had a younger sibling who wasn't uh, my younger sister was uh, only maybe only five or six months at the time so there were a few pictures of me holding her and I deleted every photo there and I kind of regret it now I wish I had a photo to look back on you know to show the difference but at the time I said you know what I've recovered from this or I'm, I'm getting there I don't want I don't want to remember how hard this was for me and my family I wanted to you know delete the physical evidence or the digital evidence as they say so I can I got rid of all that so I didn't have a chance to look back as you say and you know be like wow I, re- I really was I really was small the only actually photo that there is of me from that time is my first year uh, school photo which we never actually got in our house I, I've seen it online a couple of times and it does scare me it does absolutely scare me to look back at, you know with a healthy mind now and see just how small I was it, it is it is it's mad and it's what the brain can perceive as being okay you know when you look back now and realize god that that was not okay at all yeah yeah it's so true um I was I saw on your Instagram page um you talk about like mental health and depression did that um, come at the same time as the anorexia so the the, the depression was a lot later um so throughout okay. my mid to late teens I was actually, my, my mental health is actually fairly okay um you know as I say like when I, when I got to around 15 and my relationship with the gym started and all that sort of thing and my mind was in a much better place you know I was looking towards the leaving cert and, and school I was looking towards college and you know, I was actually in, in a fairly decent place um, throughout my mid and late, my, my mid-teens. Say. One thing I, as I mentioned before, one thing I became very conscious and very fed up of in, in my mid-teens was this whole small town, as you say, small town syndrome, mm. uh, this whole small town mindset. I, you know, I, I worked, I used to work in a butcher shop and I'd hear people come in and I'd hear all, all the chit-chat. And I knew that when I was anorexic, I knew that, I knew that back then, I had been talked about. I knew that my family had been talked about and I became so hateful and so resentful of that whole, you know, small town crack. And, you know, you can't make a move without any, without anyone knowing or without anyone talking about you. And, and when, was I it, was, when I was, sorry, was it like a comment that you heard or how did you become aware that people were talking about you? I knew that when I was in, when I was in counseling, I knew that, well, when I was at the very worst parts of my anorexia, I knew that I knew that there were common, there was one rumor going around that I had leukemia, which is completely far from the truth. But the other more sinister rumors were that, you know, my family were neglecting me and that I wasn't being fed, which is, of course, miles from the truth. But I just I hated how stories could just spin themselves up in a small town and how rumors could start, mm. you know, and because I knew the effect that was having on my family. So a few years later, you know, when, when I, you know, when I got to 15, 16 and 17, when I began to hear the chit chat in front of me I realized you know what that was I was the person being talked about years ago and I became so hateful of the whole small town attitude and how everyone knew everyone's business and when I like when I got to say fifth and sixth year in school I was hell-bent on going to college like I I talk a lot of my book about goals and how you know chasing after what we want in life and to me doing my leaving cert and going to college was a case of do or die you either get out of this hellhole that you hate, you know, or else you end up staying here. So one, one thing I talk about in terms of goal setting, I talk about, um, I was very lucky to get, to get a scholarship to come to Galway, you know, one that sort of covered most of the costs. And that's something I spent two years of my leaving cert, you know, thinking about day and night because I knew that 
a scholarship would get me out of this hometown that I hated and this whole small town syndrome that I hated. So I talk a lot about goal setting and and mindset um, in that sense. So my mid-teens were just a case of we need to get out of here and get to Galway where people are a lot more open-minded and you're not dealing with this sort of chit-chat going on all the time. Yeah, and had you um, what was the drive to go to Galway? Had you been to Galway before or... Um... Was that just part of the scholarship or did you just want to go to college in Galway? Well, when I when I was in transition year, we, we came here for no, I, I knew I wanted to study physics and uh, I, came, well, I came here for an open day in transition year and I really liked it. And I suppose when you come from sort of the area I'm from, you either go to Dublin or Galway. And a lot of the time, the more, I suppose, country people like myself end up coming to Galway. And I suppose other people then tend to go to Dublin. So I knew that, I knew that, Galway was I knew that I'd like Galway a lot more than Dublin so that's what sort of took me to Galway and I'm so glad I did come to Galway because one thing I say in my whenever I speak is that I I think people from the west of Ireland Galway Mayo and Clare they're the most wonderful people I've ever met such very welcoming people I heard I listened a lot to uh, Tommy Tiernan and Hector's podcast and they say that for centuries Galway has always been open to the stranger and it's it's a very accurate statement I've never felt more welcome anywhere than I have in Galway so I, I've I've that's probably the best part of my college experience is realizing how how lovely and how warm and welcoming people are in the mm-hmm. west of Ireland so yes yeah, so, so to go back to what you're saying I just I knew I knew that the course I wanted was in Galway I knew that it was a better option than Dublin so that just became part of the part of the vision there probably was a bit of like far far off fields are green you know I, I probably imagined that life would just be better you know which isn't always the case but yeah, I we always think to, the grass is greener. I, I, absolutely. But as I say in my book, it wasn't a case that I didn't get on with family. It was a case that I just wanted to get away from my, you know, my hometown. And that, that became the the driving force. But um, as you say, there might like my battle of depression came around the end of my first year in college. Uh, I was going out with this girl for about a year and we broke up. That's that would have been one of the factors. But I had this realization that like I said, I hadn't spoken about my mental health all through secondary school. I hadn't told my friends about my anorexia. I hadn't even properly acknowledged the fact that I had been bullied. There were a lot of things I hadn't really dealt with. And a lot of that sort of came tumbling down uh, around the end of my first year in college. So that combined with the breakup, I went into a very bad place and I had a very, very dark battle uh, with depression. And that's where I suppose the idea for my book came out of. I for the first time ever, I remember a night it was, I was in a pub with friends and for the first time ever, I opened up to my friends about my mental health. And as soon as I did that, some of my friends began to open up to me. And mm. I, I realized that talking about our problems and our mental health is very much an icebreaker. Once one person starts talking, then everyone starts talking. And that's probably, as I say, that's probably the most important pattern that I've ever recognized in my life. This would have been, say, around the summer of maybe 2018 so about three years ago now so over the next few months I had several conversations with several people where I would open up and they would open up and it it completely I was in a very very dark place and it just it lifted my spirits to to speak to other people and then to you know I was able to I was able to advise people and, and give them feedback on what they they told me based on my experiences and it gave me a sense of right what I've been through has been tough with my anorexia and the bullying and all that sort of thing, but it's happened for a reason. 
important because now I'm able to talk to other people and I suppose comfort them and, and I suppose have a look at their situation based on my situation and that whole art of talking really I suppose lifted me out of that that very very dark place a few months later uh, this would have been about Christmas 2018 I was in I don't know if you might remember uh, Carbon Nightclub a few years ago it's closed down now <laughs> But I was there. The field, the field of dreams. Um, yeah. I was there with a friend of mine, and we had a very uh, a DMC, as they say. We had a very, um, I suppose, deep conversation. And he, he, he was a guy. He was a very much a closed book, but he told me a few things from his past that really, really, I suppose, struck home with me. And I said, you know what? I would love to have this conversation. You know, this smoking area, you know, nightclub pub conversation that I've been having with so many people. I'd love to have that with everyone, you know, but you can't do that. You can't have a million pints and a million smoking areas. Yeah. I was going to say drink is a great thing, isn't it? But it's, I'm glad you said that. What it really, it really kind of annoyed me that a lot of these conversations where I would open up and and friends of mine would open up, it all happened when we were out. It all happened when we were drunk. Yeah. And I realized, I suppose I'm speaking from the perspective of a young man, particularly with the young men around me. It took a few drinks, as I say in my book, it took a few vodka Red Bulls to get the talk flowing, pardon the pun. It it really upset me that we had to be drunk to have these conversations. And that was my first peek into, I suppose, the severity of the stigma around mental health that we have to lose our inhibitions to talk about this. So that night with my friend in Carbon, I said, you know what? I want to put all this on paper so that everyone can see it. I want to put my story out there so that maybe somebody else will tell their story and feel, you know, more comfortable to open up. And I said with, with very slurred words, I said, I'm going to write a book. And <laughs> it, you know, it, we, we often, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of go, oh, good man. Yeah, good man. And my friend, I, he probably thought I was, I was going mad. But for all the things you forget on nights out, when I woke up the following morning, I remembered that. And I says, no, that's not a lie. That's not a joke. That's going to happen. Yeah. And I gave it, I gave it a few months. I gave it a few months and then around to the summer of 2019, I said, right, okay, do you know what? I'm going to give this a go. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how little experience, like for just, just to give it a context, I hated English in school. I had, I have terrible handwriting. I'm not built to write stories, but I said, you know what? I don't care how, how hard it is. I'm going to write this down. And mm-hmm. as I said before, I'm a huge believer that everything happens for a reason and that things can fall into place in miraculous ways. A friend of mine, Tiernan, his, uh, she's actually his, his godmother, uh, his mother's lifelong friend. She's a very, very wealthy lady. And myself and him went over to meet her, um, I say, around the summer of 2019. And she, I discussed this idea with her and I said, I wanted to write a book. And I you know, had this idea in my head. And she shook my hand. It was the, thir- it was the 13th of June, 2019. It was in a place called the Weir Bar uh, in Brentford in England. She said, Connor, come back to me in 12 months with a, with a book and I will pay for it to be published. And I, I nearly what? died. Is she loaded? I, I, oh, well, oh, she, she's fairly minted. Yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> fairly, fairly minted now, to, to, to put it mildly. But I, 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 she wrote a book of her own about entrepreneurship. And I suppose so she had, you know, she, she knew a bit about it. And I, I went pale. And I, I went into the toilet a few minutes later and I could not breathe. And I says, I don't care what anyone says. Things just happen for a reason. So absolutely. I can't, I, I was in England for three days and the moment I got off the plane back in Ireland, I started writing. I, di- I didn't even own a laptop at this point. You know, I, I didn't because I was doing 
doing college work on my phone and stuff. So I went and I bought a laptop and I said, right, okay, this is it. I'm going to start writing. And that was it. 12 months of writer's block and 12 months of how am I going to phrase this? And next thing you know, I had a book in my hands. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, can I ask, you said um, the book, no, I can't wait to read it myself. I haven't read it yet. But you were saying how it follows like a story of a lad. T- is it a t- telling a stranger at a house party? This story, is it? Yeah, that it's, yeah. And yeah, that's so how that happened was. A real, yeah, go on. Oh, you know, you're, you're, you're right. It is. It's inspired by a, by a real event. What ha- I, I, I had the, the story in my head and I said, okay, I have to figure out a way of, of telling this that's, that's entertaining because what I've learned from, I'm not, I'm not a reader at all, but from, from books and from films, I've realized that no matter how true or how, how brilliant the story is, if it's not told in an entertaining manner, then you're, you're, you know, you're not going to hold anyone's attention. So I was racking my mind, how am I going to tell this story? And then one night, again, everything happens for a reason. I was at this house party with a few, a few work friends of mine. And we're in this sort of a, it's kind of like a housing estate. So we're out, there's like a kind of a patio area at the back of the house. And we're all sitting in, sitting in kind of a, like a semicircle. And I was sort of sitting at the edge and I could sort of see the whole area, the whole room. And I was, I was, I had a few vodkas in me. I was, I was going well. I was full of life. And then all of a sudden I just crashed. I don't know what happened my mood just fell. I slumped in my seat and I had no, no energy left. I just, my whole good mood had just gone out of nowhere. I was still drunk. I hadn't sobered up. I don't know what happened. And I just sort of slumped in my chair and I was looking at the room and a friend of mine, he was my housemate. He was sitting to my left. He said, are you okay? And I says, I'm all right. Don't, don't mind me. And three days later, he said to me, he goes, that's your setting. Use that. And so I just wrote about that house party and I just imagined this image this fictional character who I call the stranger I give him no name because I want to create the idea that help a helping hand is, is anonymous you never know who's going to be there to help you you know you don't know what your counselor's name is going to be you don't know you don't know what friend is going to be there to listen to your story so I want to create a sense of help is anonymous and help comes out of nowhere mm. so this male character who I've never seen before I've never met before comes in and me and him have this three or four hour long conversation and I just tell him everything so that's that's where the where the setting came from wow I love that I love it because um how what you described there about like drinking and you know feeling good and having the crack and then all of a sudden you're not I feel like that's very common it's kind of like when you go drinking with your friends like I was talking from a girl's perspective we're all having fun and then all of a sudden someone's crying and you're like wait yeah. what happened and drink you know, it is, you know, it makes us happy. It's also a depressant, but drink a lot of the time brings up your true feelings. And if you drink past the limit of being able to suppress those feelings, it, it completely wears down our barriers. And that's why I feel that we often have DMCs and you actually find out what's going on in your friends' heads when they're drinking. Um, but it is like, I so agree with you. It's such a shame that it has to take that for a lot of people. A lot, I know a lot of my friends can still be private and it takes them a few drinks to actually know what's going on with them. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like it's, it's, I suppose I, I create this idea in the book that I, I, I use a sort of an analogy of drunk Connor and sober Connor. And it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a funny play on words how like, you know, there's, you have some people who are sort of, some people can be quiet enough when they're sober and then when they get a few drinks in them, they're very loud. So I create this idea that, you know, we have our sober self and our drunk self you know in a way and I suppose in a way I want to I'd love if our drunk conversations could be had sober if that makes any sense I you know 
I'd love yeah. if we could have those DMCs, as you say, when we're sober. It, it'd be such a, it'd be a better world if we could do that. You know, as you, if if our barriers could come down and we could open up when we're sober, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that idea. I have to say now, I can't wait to read your book. I just love the fact that you had no experience with English or anything, and this idea came to you, and it, it sounds like it put a fire in your belly, and you just went for it. And um, I agree with you that everything happens for a reason, like even meeting your uh, friend's godmother and her um, saying that she would provide the money to publish it like you were meant to write that book. Absolutely. One one feeling I remember is that once I had the idea and once I got to the stage where I said, right, okay, I'm I feel comfortable enough to tell this story. You know, I'm not worried about what anyone's going to think of me. You know, I feel comfortable enough to put this out there for the world to read it. Once I got that feeling, I said, right, I felt like an obligation. I felt that since I'm able to write this, I owe this to the people who feel like they can speak up. So there was a sense of obligation that I wasn't just writing for me. I was writing for hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. And that's what really pulled me through, you know, any moments of doubt, any moments of of writer's block. That's what really pulled me through, that I wasn't just doing this for me. I was doing this for people who couldn't speak up. I was doing it for, I was doing it for my 13 year old self who, mm. who couldn't tell a counselor, you know, what he was feeling. And probably the greatest message I have got, you know, I, I've, I got a lot of texts and emails from, I was on the radio a few times telling my story and, and from people who read my book, I got a lot of, a lot of people contacted me and, you know, and they told me they'd read my story and, and they really appreciated it. But probably the, one of the most meaningful messages to me was a, uh, a lady, a lady texts me on Instagram. She was in her in her twenties. She had a brother who was thirteen, uh, who was also anorexic, and she said that having read the book, her you know their family could understand what he was going through, and the father of the family and the brothers were able to be patient. And I, I think it's one thing that happens is, it's, I suppose a, a fact of human nature. You know, it's a, a mother and an auntie can be a bit more patient and a bit more understanding than a father and an uncle. And that certainly was the case when I had my battle with anorexia. I find that it's in men to get a bit more frustrated, a bit quicker. So to know that my story was able to keep the whole thing calm and it was able to help the, the family be patient with this young man, that brought me to tears to know that my story had helped just one family, you know, to get through that illness. That's, and that, that, from, that really brought me to tears to know that. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is amazing. I can't imagine how amazing that felt to get that message. Absolutely. Like it's, it's like the one thing people say, like when a book comes out, a lot of people think straight away about, about, you know, about money and about selling. And I said to so many people, this can sell one copy or a million. It doesn't matter. It's about who it helps because that's, you know, it's to know that someone who is in my shoes can go through their journey a bit more easier than I can. And that's, that's the goal for me. Yeah. I, yeah, I can understand as well. I believe that from talking to you, I believe that um, your reasons for writing the book wasn't for glory or fame or anything. It was for um, the younger Connor who would, who that could help. But um, it also makes sense Absolutely. as to why you had the energy and the resilience to finish the book because you had a strong enough why and your why was genuine. Exactly. It, it's, Probably the probably the best bit of advice I've ever gotten, and this this came from the lady Miriam, the, the lady as we said, who was f- fairly minted, as we said, <laughs> who uh, who find who who helped publish the book. 
she she get she's gave the best bit of business advice I had ever heard. She said, "If you go out into this world wanting to, you know, wanting to make money, you will never get there. But if you go out into this world with a purpose and, as you said there, with a why, you will succeed." And that that's it's such a it was such a brilliant and a reassuring message to me that when you have a why and when you have a purpose and a purpose is one thing I talk a lot about in my book. When you have a purpose and when you have a why, you'll find that drive. And as you said, you'll find that fire in that kind of way. So that's purpose is something I believe that I believe a lot of us will find, you know, but, and I believe we, we all have a, a, a distinguished purpose. And I do feel that the book and speaking about mental health is mine. So that, that definitely gave me that, that fire in the belly, as you say. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so I just have to say like, that is, I am, um... I I haven't I didn't hear of, I never knew you before this and um, it was actually a friend uh, Casey from my course who connected us and you responded to my story but I have to say um like uh, your story gives me goosebumps like I just think that is absolutely amazing and one thing you said as well thank you about um when after first year and you broke up with your girlfriend and you were experiencing depression um the bravery um you had to be the one to speak. I don't know, were you the first, did a friend ask you how you were or whatever, but say you were out drinking and you started to speak out and then your friends could relate to you. The bravery you had to be in that place and to be the one to make the, to reach the handout, that's quite unique. Yeah, it's, it's, my memory was, there was, there was myself and there was two, two of my female friends. And I can't, I can't, I can't fully remember. Was it, was it, was it two, one of the, them or was it me who spoke first it could it could have been one of them I, I can't fully remember as well as I remember the night I can't fully remember who who made the first move but, but there was three of us in particular there was three of us who spoke for a lot of the night and a lot of a lot of these as you say they, they, this DMC came up and a lot of these matters came out and it was I, I call it it was sometime in June 2018 and, and I, I call it the night that saved my life and I use an analogy in the book where I talk about I talk about suicide now I, I've never I, I can't say I've ever been suicidal and I, I, I certainly have never tried to take my own life but I do talk about like a this analogy of a sink you know like a kitchen sink for example and the water is in you know the 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 basin you could say and then the pipe itself is where one is properly you know suicidal in in the realm where they feel they may they may try to take their own life I wasn't at the point where I would try, but I was very, very close. I was in the sink, as I said, and that night to, to be able to open up to friends and to see that what I was saying could, could help them and, and what they were saying could help me. It gave a sense of purpose that took me out of that sink and made me realize that, you know what, there is, there is a lot to live for and, you know, we can recover from these things. So I do call that the night that saved my life. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. Um, I, I, I'm kind of in awe of it. I just think, uh, like so much of, uh, what you're about, like even your book and you sharing your story and so willing to speak, um, can help so many people. Like it, it addresses anorexia, uh, toxic masculinity, that lad culture, small town syndrome, um, mental health, like so many people can relate to that. Um, and I have to say, it's very refreshing to hear a lad speak so openly about it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's, I suppose it, it, it's that, as you say, that, that, that lad culture and that toxic masculinity. And of course, that does that phrase man up, you know, and it's, it's one thing, one line I have in my book, I say is that 
you know, there's a, there's this whole ideal that men don't talk, but I say, if you give a man the right environment and a sense of security, he'll pour out everything, Do you know? So it's really, it's really a mission, I suppose, to try and get rid of that man up phrase and to show that, you know, lad, you know, the lad culture really is something very flimsy and that, you know, it is okay as a young man to talk about your feelings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how was your experience in college then after um, your first year? Um, d- how long were you kind of, did you ever go back to counseling um, when you're battling depression or how did you navigate that? I, I didn't go back and, and it's, it's, I think a lot of the reason why I didn't go back was I was older and I suppose I was, I was a lot more aware of the stigma. And one thing I say in my book is that when I was 13, when I had the anorexia, um, I was referred to counseling by a doctor and that gave me the sense of, okay, this is almost like a medical procedure. This is like, you know, going to the hospital for a broken arm. A doctor has referred me to this. So this, excuse me, this has to be done. Whereas when I was older, I didn't have a doctor to tell me to do it. And I was much more aware of how counseling was perceived. So part of me was, I suppose, reluctant. And, but then there was also the fact that I would have been in denial as well. I, I don't think I, I didn't fully realize how depressed I was and that I, that I was suffering with depression until some while later. You know, I, I think one big problem with mental health is that a lot of us can live in denial for some time. But despite all of that, my, my experience in Galway has been, I suppose, very, very, uh, very, very enjoyable. Throughout my first year, as I said, I was in a relationship during my first year and the girl I was going out with, she was still in even cert. So I didn't really do the whole going out. I didn't do the whole socializing in my first year. And it's probably the only feeling of missing out that I've ever had that I didn't, you know, embrace that, you know, because everyone who comes to Galway, they love their first year and they, you know, they, they go hard at the partying and, and they meet loads of people. And that's something I didn't do. But what I will say is that the people I did meet, you know, I've held on to and I, and I adore them with all my heart, but I, I met up for last time in my second year. Now I did do a lot of going out in my second year and I really enjoyed it. And Galway, I, I don't think a second home would give it enough credit. Galway has become home from home, if that makes any more sense. You know, I've really, my second and third year, I've really enjoyed even this year, despite I'm in fourth year now, despite the whole COVID and, and, and doing college from home, I have really enjoyed it. And, and I suppose the one of the biggest things about college is the people you meet. And the people I have met in Galway are spectacular and I hope I can hold on to them for the rest of my days. So absolutely, I would say my, apart from even including, you know, those battles of my mental health, I, I, I will say my college experience has been a delightful one. And it's, I would recommend Galway to anyone. It's, it's the, the best city, it's the best city in the country is to say. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I'm from Galway myself. Yeah. It's, 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 I don't know what, you pick up on different things people say and I suppose I, I, I come home and people say oh Connor you're finishing sentences with sentences with the word like and I'm like oh yeah that's that's a goal oh yeah <laughs> oh that's so uh it's so true even with the podcast I would might like everyone on it Baratara um has it has been from Galway and listening back to it it's so um uh, embarrassing because you're listening to your self speak and it's like about four times in a sentence <laughs> like for like an hour and a half oh god it's awful yeah very bad habit uh, 
Well, in fairness, when I, when I came here first as well, there was, you know, you, you can't really hide a Cavan accent no matter where you go. Yeah, um, Cavan. But Cavan is right. It's not <laughs> but, a Cavan accent. <laughs> but in, in, in fairness now, actually, what you're hearing now is, like I've been calling nearly four years now, how I sound now is fairly, I suppose, neutralized compared to when I came here first. Uh, and what, it's funny, when I, when I speak to people from Mayo, or when I speak to people from home, I, t- I kind of go back more to the old accent and... If people from Galway are with me when I'm around people from home, they can't understand me. It's it's mad how our accents can return to what they were before. Yeah, you know, like anyway. yeah, yeah. It's so true. Um, okay. Uh, so we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, Connor, uh, is there anything else you want to discuss or? Um, I think I think we've got. I didn't even realize how long we we're talking for. Now time has flown by there. Um, but no, I, I think I think we've covered. It's nothing more you want to discuss. But I think we've all we've all everything covered yeah um, end, anyway. i just uh think that was amazing like i loved talking to you there um thank so, you thank such you. an interesting person um but um yeah if anyone who is listening to this um please foner foner please follow uh connor and read his book because uh, he's just an amazing guy and uh also a few questions for you um yep. if you could give advice to anyone uh, struggling with anorexia or an eating disorder or any sort of bad relationship with food um, yeah. would you give like a few words from your own experience I would say that my my most vivid memory um, particularly with my battle with anorexia and depression as well but particularly with anorexia my most vivid memory is a feeling of finality that this is how my life is and it is never going to change I'm you know I'm stuck here this is it this, this is how it's going to be your life can change in ways that you never thought possible. Like it's almost 10 years now since I, uh, 2011, it's almost 10 years now since I started in counseling. And to, if you told me 10 years ago that now I'd be sitting here, you know, being a competitor in powerlifting, being, you know, having become, you know, the athlete that I wanted to be, having become as strong as I wanted to become. And to be, you know, to know that I'd be telling my story to people through a book and through, through appearances on the radio and things like that. I never would have believed you. You know, one thing I've learned is that our lives can change in ways we never thought possible. So as cliche as this sounds and as overused as this phrase may sound, keep going because there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you will not believe how bright it is. Whatever help is there for you, whether it's help from family, whether it's professional help and counseling, lean into that help. That help will scare you. That help may feel a bit terrifying at first but that help is there for you and that help has your best interest at heart so lean into that help keep going and I don't want to sound cliche again but keep believing because your life can change and your life can improve and no situation is forever lovely that's really good advice um and one more as well um if you don't mind Yep. Um, any, no problem, no any advice to any lads uh, that could be listening to this and that are struggling with their mental health or find it difficult to talk about their feelings or what's going on in their head any words of wisdom for um, somebody like that to the lads listening the, the, lad, the lad culture in this country is extremely extremely strong and it's, it's hard to get away from it and I've walked away from it in terms of speaking up of my mental health, I've walked away from a lot of people from my past who would have been dismissive if they'd ever heard me talking like this. 
never be afraid to speak about your feelings. It does not make you any less of a man. It does not make you, you know, the phrase man up holds no regard. You know, never be afraid to talk about your feelings. We are all human. You know, we all have, we all struggle with our emotions. So never, ever the word is ashamed. Never, ever be ashamed to speak up about your feelings and to speak up about your emotions because I have a line in my book where I say, our ambitions and our problems, and those problems could be mental health related or anything, our ambitions and our problems are very similar. They are here today, they could be gone tomorrow, and whether you hold on to them or not is up to us. If you have an idea, an ambition, or a problem, talk about them, because you never know who's listening, and you never know how your life might change just from saying them out loud. So if you are struggling with your mental health, do please talk about it and do not be ashamed because I'm very proud to be walking a walking example of how speaking up about your problems can change your life and possibly save your life. Lovely. Yeah. I love that as well. I love that you said, um, as well as problems, ambitions, um, because I do think um, that if you have ambitions or goals, um, it's kind of in a lot of us to keep them hidden um out of fear Absolutely. of not being able to achieve them or whatever but it's important even if it's scary and it doesn't feel like you should or feel so far away from you say your goals out loud say your dreams out loud um and i love that like you never know who's listening that's very good absolutely there's i i do feel there's a uh the fear of failure in this country is massive and compared to places i think if we can see through social media failure in other places um, in the world like america and places like that failure is almost encouraged because failure is seen as a step you know a step in stone a step in stone pardon me sorry towards success whereas in this country failure is seen as you know an embarrassment and i suppose to give a bit of context to any any i suppose particularly any any lads listening when i was 15 as i said when i started my relationship with the gym and, and all that sort of thing i bought a bit i was on the way to a football match with a few i called them friends but anyway i was on the, I was on the way to a football match with a few teams teammates of mine at the time and I said to them oh, Iva, I'm after buying a bench press and a few weights and the car laughed the I don't know whose father was driving he laughed the three guys in the car laughed and I was sitting in the middle of the back seat and I just felt I felt tiny I felt outnumbered and I felt embarrassed fast forward to the age of 19 I bench pressed 150 kilos at a competition in Limerick so wow. don't listen to anyone who laughed thank you don't listen to anyone who laughs at your ambitions or goals I have one line I live by, he or she, they, those who try are a million miles ahead of those who criticize. So never be afraid to try anything new and never be afraid to fail. Absolutely. Oh, I love that so much. Um, it actually, that is actually so inspiring. Wow. And anyone, anyone, um, I've experienced this before recently. Um, I started doing something that I've always wanted to do and it was really scary um so i've always wanted to busk and i started uh busking and i love it um but the other day a group of lads walked past and they started laughing at me because i was like fiddling with the mic or whatever and um i don't know was i a bit flustered or something and they started laughing and like i was waiting to get embarrassed and i didn't because i was like the first thought that came into my head was all of you have something you want to do and you're too afraid to do it and you're laughing at me exactly like. exactly um, that was very well said yeah but yeah, I love exactly. that. Yeah, it, it's it's when I, I spoke back there before Christmas, I did a few appearances on the radio and uh, probably one of the biggest ones was I went on to News Talk. And 
it's it's a I was I was very nervous. It's a very before you come on, it's a very nerve wracking thing. You when you're on the phone, you know you you can hear the ads before you come on and you know, your heart's pounding and you're just, you're waiting to slip up. You're, you know, you're, you're imagining all the scenarios of how you could, how you could mess up your words. And I had this realization one day where I said, if I stutter, if I stammer, if I, if I mess up my words on air, so what? Because, and this is going to sound very, very arrogant. And I hope no one, um, no one holds that against me. I said, if I stutter on air and if I mess up my words, I don't care who laughs because I'm the one speaking on the radio, not them. Yeah, absolutely. And that sounds very arrogant, but that's I said. I said, you know what? I'm on the I'm on air telling my story, not you. And as arrogant as that sounds, that attitude really put me at ease and helped me, I suppose, find my words. You know, in in, in a situation like that. Yeah, but I loved um, I love your mindset there. Like, just think of your worst fear, and so what if I do? That if that's the worst thing that exactly. can happen, it's not that bad. Yeah, exactly. Unreal. Yeah. Um, okay, Connor. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all. I'm. Del- thank you for having me on. It's been a great chat. Thank you very much. No bother. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or Seven Up. All with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.